Hello and shalom everybody. My name is Julia Jassy and you are listening to Nice Jewish Girls, brought to you by Unpack, a division of Open Door Media. On Nice Jewish Girls, we sit down with women from all over the world to learn about their lives, their history, and their work. I am so excited to share the incredible stories of these women with you all and for us to learn from those making history today. Today's episode touches upon a personal topic for my family, the Agunag Crisis. If you've never heard of the Agunag Crisis before, don't worry. You're about to get a crash course from one of the leaders in the field, Keshet Star. Keshet comes from an Orthodox Jewish background and after getting a degree in law, realized that she could have a genuine impact on her community by getting involved in the fight for marriage equality. Every day, she works to resolve community issues that so often go overlooked, since Orthodox Jews and specifically Orthodox Jewish women are so often forgotten in the world of Jewish advocacy. I really wanted to learn from Keshet, what is it like to create change in your own community? Is there pressure from the inside? Is it hard to often be the only woman in the room, especially in a profession like law, which has traditionally been super gendered? And Keshet, with her wealth of experience, has answers to all of these questions for us. Needless to say, Keshet is a perfect person to hear from on this podcast. I'm so excited for you guys to meet her. And honestly, I'm super excited for this conversation. Let's do this thing. Keshet Starr is the executive director of the Organization for the Resolution of Agonot, the nonprofit organization addressing the Agonah, or Jewish divorce refusal, crisis on a case-by-case basis worldwide. At ORA, Keshet oversees advocacy and early intervention initiatives designed to assist individuals seeking a Jewish divorce, along with prevention initiatives to eliminate the abuse from the Jewish divorce process. Keshet has written for outlets such as the Times of Israel, The Forward, and Haaretz, and frequently presents on issues related to Jewish divorce, domestic abuse, and the intersection between civil and religious divorce processes. Keshet also authored academic work focused on get refusal and domestic abuse and is a Wexner Field Fellow. A graduate from the University of Michigan and the University of Pennsylvania Law School, Keshet lives in central New Jersey with her husband and three young children. Keshet, it's an honor to have you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Really looking forward to our conversation today. So am I. I'm really excited. Let's let's get right into it. So just to start off, can you tell us a bit about your background as a Jewish woman? Where are you from? What role did Judaism play in your life growing up? Absolutely. So I grew up moving around all over, living in some pretty unusual places, including Hong Kong and Hawaii for many years, and then landing up in Columbus, Ohio. And so (laughs) because I lived in places where there were very few Jewish people, I was always very, very conscious of being Jewish. And it really played a huge role in my identity because I, I knew it was something different. And I generally lived in places where it was pretty unusual. And now I'm, I imagine that that's a bit of a different experience that you're in New Jersey and there's a large Jewish population there. So how has that kind of shift been for you? It's been so interesting. And I think there are so many benefits, of course, to having all the resources. I keep kosher. so And I love food. So the combination Me <laughs> means that, yes, I love living in New Jersey. I don't know if I could go back to a no restaurant area again. However, there is something, I think, powerful about realizing how unique it is to be Jewish, realizing what a representative you are when you're the only Jewish person that a lot of people know, and 
just having that experience of being different. I remember in one of my classes in school, they decorated the whole classroom for Christmas and literally taped a Jewish star to my desk, which was (laughs) well-intentioned, but super awkward. And so it definitely has taught me a lot also about just being different and what it's like to not sort of fit the same pattern as everyone around you and how to manage that when someone is in my circles who doesn't quite fit the mold. It seems like that's been a common trend in your life since you were a kid, being like the Jewish voice. And it seems like you're doing a great job of that still. Um, And I want to really get into that. But before we do, I want to talk a bit about what your work is so we all kind of understand it, because this is super complicated and you have a genuine expertise in it. So before we kind of get into it, can you explain for us what the difference is between a halakhically Jewish marriage and a civil marriage in the U.S. or in anywhere else in the world even? Absolutely. So it confuses a lot of people because you'd think one divorce is plenty, but it's not. And essentially in Jewish law, there is a totally separate divorce process. And when I say Jewish law, I'm talking about sort of traditional Jewish law. So this is something that is really applicable in Orthodox and conservative communities. The reform movement has taken a different stance on the role of a separate Jewish divorce. But the idea is that you can go through the civil divorce process in the United States. You can get a final judgment of divorce. But if you don't have the get, which is the Jewish religious divorce, you're considered under Jewish law just as married as you were on your wedding day. So you have this conundrum where you have these two systems. They work really differently and you can be totally, you know, cross your T's and dot your I's in one system and yet completely at square one in the other system. This might seem like a really simple question, but how do you get a get? It's funny. It's not funny sentence in English. How do you get a get? But yeah. It leads to many puns. It really does. Yeah. Um, so essentially, the way you get your get is through a Bethden or a religious court. And that can mean a full adjudication of all these end of marriage issues, or it can mean a quick and simple ceremony just about the get itself. And essentially, there's a scribe who shows up who actually writes a get document on parchment. And the husband essentially hands that document to the wife. And once she receives it, the ceremony is considered complete. And then they're both considered divorced under Jewish law. And so this issue of get denial um, of Aguina, what is that? What, how do you deny someone a get? How does that happen? Great question. So essentially, the Jewish divorce has to be given willingly and received willingly. And that entire process has to happen in order for the get to be finalized. And one thing that is super different about a get and a civil divorce is that a civil divorce comes from the court and civil marriage also comes from the court. The state gets to decide, okay, now you're married and okay, now you're not married anymore. In Jewish law, it's not this sort of top-down thing. So uh, a fun fact is that rabbis at Jewish weddings are really there to make sure that nothing crazy happens and that everyone knows what to do, but Mm -hmm. they don't really marry you because in Jewish law, what happens is that you marry yourselves, essentially. And that means that if the relationship doesn't work, you need to also unmarry yourselves. Mm -hmm. And so we need this process where both parties are willing contributors. And if we can't have this sort of moment of agreement, this ceremony to end the marriage, then the marriage doesn't end. And that's where we get stuck. 
And sometimes we can't get this ceremony because someone's disappeared. They went on a, a boating outing and never came back. That's what we would call a classical Aguna situation. But more commonly, we see scenarios where the reason we can't perform again is because somebody doesn't want to. And that refusal to cooperate in the process is a really deliberate choice that keeps the other person stuck in the relationship, even once they've already made the decision that they don't want to be in the relationship any longer. Absolutely. And is this a situation that we see everywhere in the world? Is this specific to Israel, specific to America, or is this kind of universal right now? It's really universal. It shows up differently in different jurisdictions. So in Israel, for example, there's no difference between civil and religious personal status. So if you don't have a get, you also can't be civilly divorced. There's no such thing. Mm -hmm. That means that there are people in Israel who aren't necessarily religiously committed to the idea of a get, but need a get because they're in a legal system that requires it. In the U.S., one of the challenges we experience is that we have a separation of church and state, which in general I think is a great idea. So I'm not not against the Constitution <laughs> entirely, but it means that addressing this issue in the legal system is really complicated and really messy. So it, yeah. it limits some opportunities that Agunot have to really get relief from their situation through the American legal system. And where does your work play into this? How do you kind of find a way to, to help these women when legally there is not much that they can do? Very good question. Thank so you. what we do essentially when we work with Agunot is that we try to create a menu of options which give them different ways to pursue the get. And that mm -hmm. could be finding creative ways to work with the legal system. When you try and bring the get into the court system, it's like doing gymnastics. You have to find these very creative ways to get around the challenges involved. But there mm -hmm. are creative opportunities if you know where to find them. We also will sometimes engage in social and community activism. So that could mean a demonstration outside someone's home or place of business or, you know, an online social media campaign, something where... We basically create a world where you can't withhold a get and hold someone hostage and still live your life as if nothing's happening. So we really try to create that sense of community accountability. And sometimes it's working behind the scenes, opening up communication between the parties, seeing if we can informally mediate or get everyone in the room to agree on a global settlement that will include the get. So our tactics really vary and a huge priority for us is putting the aguna in the driver's seat. It's not this dynamic where you come in and you sit down and we're the experts, so we're going to tell you what's what. We really see the aguna as the expert on her life and on her ex. She spent a good amount of time being married to him. And so we rely on her to figure out which options are going to work the best, which options are is she comfortable with. She may not be comfortable with her face being on a billboard everywhere. That might not be something she wants. And so to really work with her comfort level and her priorities to create an action plan that's going to be effective, but that's also going to empower her as opposed to making her feel like she's losing even more control when she's already lost so much control in this process. Absolutely. And I think that word you just used, empowering her, is something that I've seen some of your social media campaigns just scrolling through social media. I've seen a lot on Twitter, a lot on Instagram. I saw you guys in the cover of a magazine. This conversation of getting a get was something that I think we never really had a long time ago. 
And I think a lot of women in, in my generation, college age and younger, are seeing this and realizing that it's kind of this new time where we're kind of Jewish women are taking ownership of our lives. And it's really, really exciting and empowering for us to know that as we, you know, look forward into our futures, into a world of marriage, there are women who come before us who are fighting for equality before we even are thinking about it. And it's just really wonderful to see. Your work is incredible. What inspired you to get involved in this world? So it was very serendipitous in that I went to law school wanting to do something with family law and social justice, didn't really know what. I decided to spend my first summer of law school interning with a, an agency that worked with survivors of domestic abuse. And they happened to casually mention they had just gotten this grant to work with the Orthodox community. And I never even thought about there being abuse in the Orthodox community. But when I thought about it, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. It's everywhere. So it would be here too, but it will probably look different. And I really had such a powerful experience. I was the only person on the project that was Orthodox. And there's something really complicated, but also rewarding about working in your own community and really feeling like you're creating change that's also going to impact your children and their children and, you know, is really close to home and in your own backyard. So I really fell in love with the work and just stayed involved since then. So wouldn't have seen it coming, but I wouldn't change it for anything. Absolutely. And I think it's so interesting, too, because... Like sometimes you're inspired by your family history, sometimes you're inspired by your personal experiences, but it seems like you were inspired by this desire to stand up for women, to be kind of um, a benchmark of change in the community, which is an incredible thing to see. Thank you. And I think there's something very powerful about organic change in communities, that it's one thing for people outside the community to say, oh my gosh, you guys are really messing this up. You're doing this all wrong. But I don't think that kind of change is ultimately lasting. Where if the community can change from within and you have people who live in the community and have connections in the community who are taking ownership of these types of issues, it changes the community from inside out. And that's the kind of change that really sticks around. It's slower and it's longer in a lot of ways than more external change. But I think it ultimately creates something really lasting that becomes part of the community culture itself. Absolutely. I think it's really incredible that you saw this ability to create change in your community and you're creating it yourself. I, I think that a lot of the shift that I've seen within my lifetime in the community is Jewish women kind of acknowledging here, we, we have this tremendous culture. We have this tremendous history. And Jewish women are not the type to be quiet. Like we, we've never <laughs> been the type of person to like sit down and take it, right? So we are are creating a future that looks more equitable within this tradition that we are so proud of. And those two things are completely reconcilable. And that's just really an incredible place to be. And I'm wondering, you know, who are the women that came before you in this work? And like, who are your mentors in this field? There are so many women. And what is really powerful about this work is that it's really multidisciplinary. I'm an attorney, so I bring that background in. There are people who have extensive background in halakha or Jewish law. There are social workers. There are all these different lenses that people bring to the work. So mm -hmm. there are many women who have inspired me, women who have been working in the field for decades and just have creative workarounds. I'll share a quick story. One woman yeah. who I have learned so much from, who, who is a Toenet Rabbanit in Israel. So she is an advocate in rabbinic courts in Israel for women, was telling me the story once how she 
kept trying to bring a certain issue in front of a particular rabbi and was not getting anywhere. And then Mm. one day she happened to see that he went to wash his hands before eating a sandwich, which in traditional Jewish law, between when you wash your hands and when you eat the sandwich, you can't talk. And Mm. she just pitched her case while he was like walking back (laughs) from the sink before he could get to his sandwich and Mm -hmm. ended up starting a conversation that led to practical change in that system. And I feel like it's just this small example, but the kind of creativity and sort of scrappiness that this work requires sometimes that it's really hard to create change in a system that's not looking, that doesn't see change as a positive for the most part. But that also things are always changing. And if you can find creative ways to approach the work and to have a sense of humor about it, you can really stay in it for the long term and you can see that needle move slowly. And I think that's that's the best part of doing this work over a long period of time, that you see change in a different way than you get to see only in you know, a summer or a year long period or these short bursts. Yeah, I think that that's the best way to describe Jewish women scrappy sense of humor and like making change over food. I think that's probably the best (laughs) way to describe our community. And that's something that I really love. I think that what it seems like you're describing is like we're using the tools that we have as Jewish women. Like we're historically these people who stand up for ourselves. We're historically these people who are scrappy and are funny and, you know, don't take ourselves too seriously, have a sense of humor and work really, really hard. And I think that it seems like you and the work that you're doing is using these tools that we already have been cultivating for generations and have been, I guess, underscored in our culture And you're saying these are actually really important tools that we have and we can use these tools to make change. And it's it's really incredible to see. And so I'm wondering, who are the women coming up in this field? What roadblocks do you hope they won't have to face that you've had to face? Where do you see this going? It's such a great question. I think that we've shifted as a community overall to being more comfortable talking about difficult things, having less of a culture of, you know, if something uncomfortable is happening, let's just kind of nudge it over here and not really engage with it because it's awkward and being more willing to engage. And I think you're seeing that. And we actually do a lot of programming in high schools. And it's exciting to see how many high schools are open to bringing their students into that conversation. And how many students are so smart and thoughtful and have great questions and are really sort of using those muscles of engaging with difficult issues. I definitely have a hope that we'll have more women in the field. One of the challenges of being a woman doing this work is that you're often the only woman in the room. And so that is something you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable with to whatever extent it comes up. And it also is, I always find it a good reminder of what it's like to appear in a lot of these spaces as a party to a proceeding, which is even more personal and still has the same sort of gender dynamics. But I hope that we'll see more women in the field. I hope that we'll see just that continued commitment to creating change over the long term. And probably the biggest thing that I hope people take from the sort of moments of energy that this issue has is that real problems don't get solved quickly. Name any like real serious social issue. You're not going to like fix poverty over one lunch meeting. That's not how it works. But (laughs) that, that sort of continued commitment to just staying in it for the long haul and really developing the grit to stick with an issue 
over years, not just, you know, a few weeks or a few months. I think the more younger people can really develop that sense of commitment over the long haul, the more they're going to be able to create change. And I try to really encourage people that just because you had two rallies and you didn't resolve the case, that doesn't mean it's all over. It's it's part of this bigger picture and this longer runway to create change. Yeah, Kasha, this is incredible. Your work is, is so inspiring. And just listening to you, I feel so empowered. Um, just what you said about being the the only woman in the room fighting for this change, I think is something that I hope everybody listening to, especially younger girls, understand how much things are shifting. Because I remember growing up, this actually is a situation very, very personal to my family. Um, my grandmother has been denied a, a get for over 20 years. Um, you know, it's an extremely painful situation for her. After coming out of an unhealthy marriage, she wasn't allowed to move forward. Um, and since then, she's found love again. She lives in the U.S. She was born in Israel and moved here when she was a teenager. Um, she remarried civilly in the U.S., but she's still halakhically married to my biological grandfather. And that's been something that's been really, really hard for her. And I, I actually spoke to her kind of in preparation for this interview. I told her about what the work that you do, um, and she was just so inspired by it because this wasn't something that was available to her or she didn't know it was available to her um, when she was going through this 20, 30 years ago. Um, and the fact that, you know, maybe her life path could have been different if she had had the resources that you're providing for women now is something that is just really, really inspiring for me to hear, knowing how much it's impacted my family. What advice would you give to women like my grandmother? Because I'd imagine her story isn't unique. I'm imagining that this is a pretty common, common situation. It is, unfortunately. It definitely comes up. And I think there's it's so inspiring for me to hear stories like that because it reminds me that as an organization, I think you're very conscious of your strengths and your weaknesses. But to also think about, wow, what if we weren't here? What would that world look like? And it it gives me that energy to remind myself that was the world not that long ago. And yeah. so that's very inspiring to me. I think that when it comes to long-term situations, of course, it's difficult. People get stuck over time. It's like putting your feet in wet concrete. You're not going anywhere for a while. And yeah. so it, it can be very difficult to create change when there's been such a long separation. At the same time, people sometimes get tired, they get older, they shift, that trying the same set of tactics that didn't work 10 years ago can work now. And yeah. so for people to know that that option exists, and again, a woman might choose to pursue an active process to get a get. Or she may choose not to, and that is a choice for her to make. But it is a different world to at least know you have the choice. And that's what I think is most important to me. The get doesn't have to be critical for everyone. It doesn't have to be number one on everyone's list. Obviously, there are Jewish legal implications that can be more complicated if you're planning on expanding your family. But putting all of that aside, it's a personal choice that people have to make. But we want people to know that there are options out there where you can get help and get support. And one thing I find, I used to answer the phones and have all of our intake calls at ORA. And I don't play that role anymore. We have an amazing social worker who runs our helpline. But one thing that would happen a lot that I kind of miss a little bit is that people would call and say, oh, I heard that you work on Agunot, that's your issue. And I would say, yeah, that's what we do. You know, it's who we are. And people were so happy just to know that we existed, that yeah. you already felt like you gave them something in the first minute of the conversation. That just knowing mm -hmm. that there are 
people who are sitting here all day by the phones waiting to (laughs) address this issue that I'm dealing with is really validating. And I hope it really sends the message that while there are bad actors that are perverting Jewish law in order to use it as a tool for control, that that behavior doesn't represent Judaism and it doesn't represent the Jewish community and that the Jewish community is investing resources, not just our time, but we wouldn't exist if not for financial support from the community because we're a nonprofit organization, that I think it's very validating for Agunot to see that the community is investing actual money and resources and time and volunteerism and energy into this issue. And it, it makes you feel a lot less alone in the process. Absolutely. And that's something that I don't know was kind of like you mentioned earlier, was a normalized conversation to have a bit ago. And so I'm wondering if you're seeing in the people that you speak to, are the majority of people who are speaking to, are they more from a younger generation? Are you seeing a generational divide around who's open to to getting involved with this work? Or do you think that this has become more gendered? It's a very good question. I think we are seeing an opening. I think that five, 10 mm-hmm. years ago, it was more of an activist issue and less of a community issue. And it's great to have activists, but you're mm-hmm. always going to have activists in sort of niche areas and you really need it to become communal. And just as an example, we have couples come to our office to sign a document called the Halachic Prenuptial Agreement. And it's basically a document you can sign before you get married that pretty much creates this incentive structure mm-hmm. where the get is not going to be an issue later. And so we have these couples come and sign it. And I always ask, what made you decide to sign one? I'm always curious. And I felt like even five years ago or so, they came in to sign it because they were fired up about it and they were passionate about these issues and they knew a lot about it. And more recently, you see people come in just being like, oh, well, doesn't everyone like this is just what you do. And I think that's really the kind of change we're looking for, that if it's something that only activists engage in, that's not enough to create change. But if it's something that's just part of the fabric of the culture, you're getting married, you sign a prenup, A, that's great because then it's not this like super awkward personal Mm -hmm. thing. And B, it really creates an environment where you build a culture that says we don't do get refusal Absolutely. Here. And when the culture says it, it changes the behavior because abusers, and again, get refusal is a form of abuse. Get refusers are abusive. They're engaging in an abusive behavior. Abusers need a social network like everybody else. And if they're in an area where the social cost of doing this is too high, they are going to do it in significantly lower numbers. And we're seeing that impact already in communities that have normalized these conversations. Yeah. And in a moment, I want to to hear a bit about the stories of some of the women that you've worked with. But I'd, I'd imagine for you that that's a hard thing to to deal with every day, hearing a lot of stories of women who are enduring abuse is, is I'd imagine, pretty taxing. So how do you kind of come to terms with that? How do you handle that on a daily basis? It's a very good question. And vicarious trauma is a real challenge in this field. And that's basically a situation where you experience some trauma symptoms because you're hearing mm-hmm. so many traumatic stories. I will say for me, my biggest commitment mm-hmm. is to do this work for the long haul, not the short term. And so I try to set up my work structure so that I'm able to sustain it that way. And having boundaries is huge. Mm -hmm. We often think of having boundaries as being mean, Mm -hmm. right? If I'm nice, I'm going to pick up the phone whenever you call. 
And what I've learned over the years is that I can say, you know, I really want to hear your story. This is not a great time because I'm leaving the office in five minutes and I don't want to be rushed. So let me pull open my calendar right now. Let's set up a time where we can speak so I can hear you and you can have all the time you need. And that's the sort of way that I can set the boundary that keeps me functional so that I don't have kids sitting on the curb outside daycare, you know, for (laughs) half an hour because I got stuck on a phone call. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the person feels heard and valued. And so realizing that it's possible to do both. And really, it's so cliche to talk about self-care that we're all just imagining like bubble baths and who has time for that. But I will say I am very intentional about doing the things that really fill me up. And I love to read. I love creative projects. I love art. And even if it's 10 minutes once a week or something, I really make the time to do those things. Because if I'm just empty, then I don't And I'm generally a pretty patient person. I don't have any patience for anyone at work, at home, (laughs) nobody. And so I really am intentional about taking care of myself so that I have what to give and that I'm able to give and contribute and hear and sort of hear the trauma, but also be in a healthy place myself as much as possible. Yeah. And I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with finding that balance, something that I think I struggle with a lot, I'm sure. I think right now there's this intense pressure you constantly can see and you're bombarded with what everyone else is doing. Um, And that really makes you feel like any moment that you're spending to decompress, to take care of yourself is wasted time, is wasted kind of energy and effort. And like you said, you want to be in it for the long haul because there are lots of women that you want to be able to defend. And you don't want to have to kind of um, run out of steam. And I'd love to hear a bit about some of the women that you have worked with. Um, and some of the most impactful cases that you've dealt with in your work so far. Absolutely. I think there are are so many different stories that come to mind. And what is, I think, really intense about the work we do, but also really rewarding, is that people are generally coming to us when they're leaving really unhealthy and abusive situations. So there's already been this very long road where they've been through a lot and they've struggled with a lot. And now there's sort of this new challenge of the get. And it's often coming at a moment where people are are really exhausted. And so yeah. there's this just intensity to that and hearing all of these difficult stories. And I think what's been interesting to me is not only sort of hearing the stories, but also seeing the way in which sort of faith works in complicated ways as people process their experience and how much it comes into the abuse, how much it's part of the get process, and how much it changes later. And I'll just share as an example, we worked with a woman who had been in a very physically abusive relationship. And I remember also and speaking of sort of the the spirituality and abuse connection, I remember her telling me how she realized several years into her marriage that things were much more likely to physically escalate on Shabbat because her husband knew that while she would call the police eventually, she would let it escalate more before picking up the phone than she would on like a Wednesday night. And so yeah. things like this, where you sort of figure out over time how much the religion is like manipulated to really help further the abuse in these situations. And she had actually experienced a, a, a physical attack while she was pregnant, which is also unfortunately not uncommon in terms of how abuse works and when it tends to spike and fall, and then went through a protracted get process. And 
we worked on a lot of different tactics over a long period of time. And eventually, I think this was actually really a case where the consistency made the difference. It wasn't the first one or two rallies, but by rally four or five, when he saw that the rallies were not going to go away and that they were going to keep coming, he did actually give the get. And she's Mm -hmm. now remarried, has more children. She's really sort of in a different chapter of her life. And that's the best part. I just got an email the yeah. other day from a former Aguna sharing her engagement photos, you know, oh, with wow. uh, her new fiance and we yeah. get baby pictures. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is that, yes, we work on divorce, but the reason we work on divorce is because we want people in happy, healthy relationships. And yeah, sometimes yeah. when you're in a marriage that isn't working, that isn't really repairable, the best way to get into a happy, healthy relationship is to get out of this one and be free to go into another one. So when you see that shift and you see people really get to a place where this is sort of a blip in their story, but this is not who they are in their identity, there's something incredibly powerful about that and just really rewarding to see that, wow, like they got through this. And now they're starting this new chapter. And I feel like I learned so much from that resilience that I get to see every day at work. Absolutely. And how do you handle situations like that when women are in acute physical danger? How do you prioritize safety in those situations where there isn't the equal balance in that partnership? So safety is always the most important piece. And most of the people who call us are into a separation. Some of them are thinking about a separation. And in that case, we would refer them to a source where they can get some safety planning. And that's really where someone in an abusive relationship will work very closely on how do I stay alive and healthy in this relationship and how do I leave safely? What a lot of people don't realize is that leaving is one of the most dangerous moments in an abusive relationship. So it's Mm -hmm. not a simple thing to just, oh, pack up your bags and leave. That's not how these relationships work. And you have to be so careful and protective of your own safety in how you get out. So we really prioritize making sure that people have those resources and are focused on safety. And that's also where the Aguna-led approach is so critical, that having a rally always sounds great. And sometimes people will ask us, well, how come you're not rallying for this person or for that person? But there are situations where someone says, you know what, we could have this rally and this person might come to my house and try to hurt me the next day. And I don't want to do that. So just realizing that there are ongoing safety concerns and that we are constantly balancing the desire to push the case forward with also maintaining safety and just making sure that it's not crossing past a line that she's not comfortable with. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that like from the outside perspective, you don't understand, which is why being in a very close conversation and having this intimate relationship with these women where you're hearing what's happening, you're hearing their stories from them. And the work that you do is so important because it's so easy when you're kind of just scrolling on the internet. And like you'd said, kind of normalizing it beyond just activism for you to get really fired up. And it's so much more than that. And I think hearing the complexity of it just gives you a new appreciation for the tremendous amount of work that you do. And I'm curious, you know, what's been one story that gives you the most hope? Because there are these really difficult situations to grapple with. And I'm sure you cling on to those ones with the more hope to get you through it. So we got a phone call and the woman was in a physically violent relationship, which not all of the relationships that are abusive involve physical violence, but this one happened too. And she was 
pretty young in her early 20s and her ex was telling her that he was not going to give her a get until she could no longer have children. She really wanted children. That was something that came up in the marriage and he was explicitly using the get as a way to sort of poke at this really personal and intimate, you know, hope that she had to become a yeah. mother. And she called us and we asked her because we always ask if she had signed a halakhic prenup and it turns out she had. And so we talked her through finding a copy. We maintain a digital registry, as do other sources. Thankfully, she had sent it to a digital registry, so we were able to access a copy. We worked with her on how to enforce it, and she had her get within about two months. Wow. Two months might sound slow, but for a case of this nature, you know, and I totally hear that, but processes are processes, and her husband was not, you know, jumping out of his chair to give that get as quickly as possible. Um, But this was the type of case that had this come in without a prenup, we would, I think, have been looking at probably a at least two or three year long process based on the flags, based on what we can estimate. We would have been looking at a long haul and instead we weren't. And that didn't mean that everything was magically perfect. She still had to go through the civil process. There were still other aspects that were difficult. But the difference between the get and the civil divorce is that you will eventually get your civil divorce. Even if the other person stops showing up, the process keeps moving forward. Where the Mm -hmm. get, as with your grandmother, someone doesn't want to give it, that can go on for five years, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. We have a case where the couple separated in 1974 and there's still no get. Wow. And so you have these extreme situations. And to know that because she signed this document, she was able to avoid all these years of suffering. It gave me hope because it was really a reminder that while we can't change the fact that abuse happens, we can't just create abuse-free communities because there's abuse Mm -hmm. everywhere. And if we think we don't have any, it's just because we're missing it. But what we can do is we can change the culture around the abuser and we can create a world where, yes, people are still trying to behave in abusive ways, but we have mechanisms to really avoid those consequences and to change the incentive structure. And seeing that happen in practice in a case with so many red flags was really, I mean, I don't want to say exciting because it's obviously terrible when someone comes to you and has been through so much, but it, it was really wonderful to see that impact and that change. And I imagine that's probably the most rewarding part to see that your work has real change and that there are generational shifts that people are getting this halachic prenup before even considering marriage or before even beginning to be married. That I think that's something that would never have been a part of the conversation a couple of generations ago. Absolutely. And we're seeing also that as you get into more ultra Orthodox communities, there's more opening over time than I would have expected. That yes, we're not going into every ultra Orthodox high school and giving presentations. But we're having conversations that we weren't having two years ago. And so that change, it really is happening. And it really shifts the landscape. Because again, the the reason I'm so passionate about the prenup is that I think it changes outcomes for the couple. But I think even more importantly, it changes the culture. Yeah. And it, what you really have to do on an issue like this is change the culture from the beginning. And what is your hope for the future? You know, a couple of generations down the line and we're looking back, what do you hope is going to be the landscape of this world? I hope that we've shut down because we're out of business. And (laughs) I hope that this isn't a live issue anymore. I hope that we've done enough as a community that it'll 
just kind of be this historical record thing. And, you know, speaking of your grandmother, I hope that I get to tell my grandchildren one day that, yeah, I used to spend all this time on this get thing, but, you know, that doesn't really happen anymore. And that's really what we hope for. We hope to stop these cases before they happen, to create a culture where abuse isn't something that we're okay with being around and something Mm -hmm. that we're committed to really addressing in a proactive way. And that by taking all of those steps that we move on to many of the other problems that the world has, but that we don't need to spend more time on this one because it's not just a live issue anymore. That's so beautiful to hear. And just that that hope makes me emotional because I think that's what we all really want to see. We want to see a world where the issues are bigger than just us. And we hope that we're in a future where this doesn't even need to be a conversation anymore. And do you think that we can reach that place of equality for, for women in marriage and in divorce? Do you think that having this equal playing field is something that we could we could attain? I do. I think it's it's not going to happen in a week. And I think it's not going to be easy. (laughs) But I think that we can. I think that there's been so much change that I've seen in the 10 plus years that I've been in the field. It's not the same Aguna issue that it was when I first came to it. And Mm -hmm. I feel that that community commitment has been growing and growing over time. And that we can get there. And it doesn't mean we're not going to have new problems. And it doesn't mean that we're not (laughs) going to have abuse and divorce and unhappy marriages and all of those issues. But the beauty of being able to talk about things as a community Mm -hmm. is that when you take an issue and you kind of bring it out into the open and you shine a light on it, it really Mm -hmm. changes the way that that issue functions. And I think we're doing that with this issue. We're doing it with other issues. And we can continue to do it. And I always feel like when we talk about the idea of being in, in Orlagoyim or being a light unto the rest of the world, yeah. I always feel like anyone can sweep things under the rug. That's not that special. Everybody does it. Um, but the area mm-hmm. where we can be leaders is by being willing to talk about issues that are difficult yeah. and being willing to confront those issues and create change. And by us doing that, hopefully we inspire other communities around us to do the same thing. And Again, you can never change the fact that bad things happen, but you can change the context in which they happen and the results afterwards. Absolutely. You know, it makes me think a lot about my family, you know, my mom, my grandma, my great, great aunt, actually, she's still alive, Dora Dina. And so she came over for Shabbat dinner and it's my little sister, my mom, my grandma, and my great, great aunt. And we all had dinner together and it was four generations of women. And it's really incredible because obviously there's been so much generational change. My my grandma's from Israel. My Doradina is from, I guess, mandatory Palestine. So just before, even 48, she was born in, in the land of Israel. And so between intercontinental, intergenerational differences between four generations of women, so much has changed, but a lot is really similar. The same kind of spunkiness, the same willingness to, to fight for what we want. I think one thing that I love about the culture of Jewish women is that we're not quiet people. (laughs) We don't take things sitting down. We're really adamant when there's something we're passionate about. And so much change comes from just sitting at a table and normalizing the ability to have these conversations. And I'd imagine that's something that you probably have experienced with your family as well. Like the conversations that I have with my mom and the conversations that I hope someday I'll have with my children and the advice that I want to give to my daughter someday is going to be this one of empowerment and one that's really shifting. Um, And so I guess just my final question for you on that same vein is what advice would you want to give 
to your daughter, your younger sister, to whatever young girl might be listening to this. And I hope everyone's listening to this, but specifically for the young girls who are listening to this right now. Um, what advice navigating the world as a Jewish woman would you want them to know as a mentor, as someone who is paving the way before them? Oh, that's such a beautiful question. I would say, and I love what you said about Jewish women not being quiet, but I yeah. think to know <laughs> that we have this history. And again, you see this all the way to the very first chapters of Genesis. You know, We mm-hmm. have this history of really taking action and sort of shaping the world that we want to see as Jewish women. And there are so many moments throughout the Torah, throughout history, where it was really the voice of Jewish women that were like, nope, this isn't a good path. We're not going to do that. Or nope, like we have a a clearer vision of what the future can be. And I think it's especially that future piece that's such a powerful part of Jewish womanhood. And so I think the most important thing is that it's easy to focus on how difficult change is or how many obstacles there are or how many, you know, challenges there are in the way, but to focus on the power that you do have and to focus on doing something. It doesn't have to be the perfect thing. It doesn't have to be the biggest or best or loudest thing, but to have this commitment to doing something about the issues that we care about and to having that vision of the future, that the biggest thing we can do for ourselves and for our community is to realize that just because the world looks a certain way today doesn't mean it has to look that way tomorrow even though it feels like it will. Yeah. But um, if we can overcome that and have this vision of the world that we want to see and a commitment to doing something, even the smallest thing, to get us one step closer to that vision, that's the way that we make that vision a reality. That's really beautiful. And you are such an important part of that change. And I, I had mentioned this to you earlier, but you know, I was talking to my grandma about the work that you do. And just to hear how hopeful it made her that there are women who are going through what she went through, who won't have to have the same outcome that she had, who will be able to not have to endure that pain of not being able to get a get, uh, will be able to have equality in marriage, something that is inspiring for everyone, but especially inspiring for the women and the families of women who have gone through this before. And just know that your work is so, so, so impactful in our community um, and that you truly are creating this change that is so inspiring to see. So know how much it's it's appreciated how grateful we are for what you do and thank you continue fighting because it's so important thank you so much thank you so much for the kind words and the inspiration i i really <laughs> appreciate it and it's been just such a pleasure speaking with you absolutely it's been such an honor to have you on the show and um i hope that you know we can continue this conversation absolutely i would love that thank you so much I hope you all loved hearing from Kesha as much as I did. Just hearing about everything she's done and continues to do to fight for women is so absolutely inspiring, especially knowing that women like my grandma are genuinely impacted by the work that she does. What I find so especially powerful about Kesha's story is that she focuses on her own community, on helping women just like her who never could have had access to a get just a few generations ago. Coming from a background in law, Keshet wanted to use her degree as an attorney to do more than just be a lawyer. She wanted to help survivors of domestic abuse. As an Orthodox woman herself, she recognized the gravity of the Agunot crisis in her community, and she dedicated herself not to despair, but to solving it. There's something so incredibly humbling so absolutely hopeful about that. 
Keshet Star is so much more than a nice Jewish girl. She's scrappy and creative, and she doesn't take no for an answer when it comes to protecting other Jewish women. Her work comes from a place of genuine love for Judaism and the women who carry it on. And I'm so honored to have had the chance to speak with her today. On a more personal note even, I'm just honored to know that women like her have dedicated their lives to this work. If my grandma had a woman like Keshet Star to guide her just a few decades ago, her life could have gone so differently. It's incredible to see the progress that these women have accomplished in just a few generations. I look forward to the day when get denial is just a part of a history lesson. With women like Keshet leading this movement, perhaps that day will come sooner than we'd expect. And this, my friends, is where we'll leave you for today's episode of Nice Jewish Girls. Hopefully a bit smarter and a bit more inspired. I'd love, love, love to hear your feedback and suggestions for other nice Jewish girls to host on this pod. Email us at podcasts at jewishunpacked.com and join us next week when we'll be speaking with Dr. Shana Weiss, a scholar of Judaism, gender, and Israeli culture. Nice Jewish Girls is a production of Unpacked a division of Open Door Media. Rivki Stern is our producer, and I am your host, Julia Jassy. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related, and subscribe to our other podcasts. Follow Unpacked on all of the social media platforms like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. Talk to you later, ladies.